Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Happy birthday, Bob. It's good uh, to be with you. My name's Tim. Welcome to Greater Alton Church. And today we're starting a short series. It's just a three-week series uh, called It's a Wonderful Life. And uh, I love Christmas. I absolutely love Christmas. When I was a kid, I was the Christmas kid. I was the guy that set up. My mom and dad weren't into Christmas that much. My family wasn't into Christmas that much. And if we were going to have a tree, if we were going to have any kind of decorations... Tim was going to be the one. And so as a, at an early age, I was putting up lights. I was putting... We had an aluminum tree that was this tall. And it was the, the aluminum. It was really made of aluminum, you know, that, those kind, that could start a fire if you got it anywhere near a match. And I put lights as a 10-year-old on it like it was a regular tree. And it survived every year. It did fine. And uh, I'd set up the nativity scene just right. I wanted to make sure I had it just right. Of course, back then I thought... The wise men came to the manger. I didn't realize they came to a house. So it was news to me when I got older. Big shock. But I, but I had a, a lot of fun setting things up, getting things decorated. And, and to, even today, you know, this uh, putting up lights at my house is an event. It's not, and it's not a one-day event. It's a series of days. In fact, here we are, December 6th, is it? And I've been putting up lights for about two weeks and uh, I think I'm just about done. And I know I'm just about done when I'm driving through a neighborhood looking at our neighbor's lights and we round the bend and I look at this house and go, oh my, who did that? And Denise goes, you dummy, that's our house. <laughs> and it happened this year. I go, oh my gosh, look at that. She goes, I think you went a little overboard. I love Christmas. I can't help it. I got big bulbs, great big bulbs on my house, just like my great-grandfather did on his house in the middle of the country. And so I, I just love that. Um, and if it snows, if it snows, oh, it's bonus to me. You know, um, it's a white Christmas, and I like that. And I love all the music. I like, I, I got John Denver, Rocky Mountain Christmas playing, you know, uh, sometimes. Or we'll have the Carpenters or whatever, Bing Crosby. We'll have all these, different, Dean Martin, we'll have them all. We got them all playing, Perry Como, you know, and the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> we'll have those. <laughs> what were they thinking? Anyway, uh, but that, that I, we do that. And uh, last night, Denise, <laughs> bless her heart, she didn't sleep all night long decorating for today because we're having our small group over to watch the movie It's a Wonderful Life. And, and so she's been decorating, and, she's, and uh, we got all kinds of stuff we've collected over the years. Um, I just love Christmas. Probably love uh, most of all are all the movies. Don't you have a favorite Christmas movie? I like White Christmas. I love White Christmas. And, and Nicole and I begin to have started watching that together. We have to watch it at least once. And we've got to see Danny Kay. And those of you who know Rob Jones, he looks just like him. And it's just, it's just you know, to hear him sing about snow and... Snow, snow, snow. Yeah. I love, I love that movie, you know. Uh, Probably you've got different ones. You know, some of you are elf fans. You like, you know, hope you find your dad. You know, you like that. You like that movie. It's weird. Um, Nightmare Before Christmas. That's one of, that's one of, that's one of Brian's favorite movies. Um, she just loves that movie. She hates it. But it's Nightmare Before Christmas. Making Christmas. Making Christmas. You know. Uh, that, but, there, you know, some of us, I, I, I'm an old-fashioned kind of guy. I like uh, Miracle on 34th Street uh, with Natalie Wood, you know, not with the uh, Matilda girl, although I like that one. I like that one, too. 
Um, and then, and you know, of course, there's uh, some weird ones, some weird Christmas, uh, uh, gremlins. What? Gremlins? You know, when I looked at, I went to RottenTomatoes.com and Forbes magazine. What a, you know, wide selection there. And they had their top ten, and gremlins was on there. You know, uh, and, and I was getting ready to say, who can't watch Die Hard and not think about... Remember this scene? Come to the coast, have a few laughs. You know, I mean, it's just, it's capital, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, the weather outside is frightful. You know, and he's shooting up everybody. You know, it's just, uh, it's weird. You know, and you've probably got your favorite movie. I'm going to talk about my favorite. When I've been wanting to talk about this for several years, I had a, a, a Gary and Alan and I one time, we entertained the idea of, of doing a reconstructing Bedford Falls in the back and where people would walk through during Christmas and we'd all be actors and so many Jimmy Stewart's, so many, you know, different scenes. You know, who would be Old Man Potter? George Bailey. You know, that would be great, wouldn't it? And having somebody do that. Paul Mariolis, maybe. Yeah, yeah, George Bailey. You know. But... Um, we thought about that. We thought, oh, that'd be cool. And people could walk through and, and we could talk about it. It's a Wonderful Life. I've always, I've, I, I looked, I've always wanted to do a series on it. Look at every character, everyone from Mr. Potter to, to Violet and, um, and to Harry and all the, Mr. Gower, all these different characters. And if you've seen the movie, you, you know what it's about. It's about this guy named George Bailey who's having the worst day. Talk about a wonderful life. It was the most horrible, terrible day of his life. Everything was going wrong, and it was Christmas Eve on top of that. If you remember, they lose $8,000. Uncle Billy, the absent-minded Uncle Billy, uh, Thomas Mitchell's the actor, he has these strings tied around his fingers. He somehow mistakenly folds $8,000 in a newspaper and hands it to Mr. Potter there at the bank, and, and by mistake, you know, he gives this guy the money they need to make to make the ends meet. And here come the bank examiners. There's scandal. George is like, what am I going to do? Everything seems to be going wrong. It's a meltdown day. And you find him finally at Martini's, the local bar, where he's calling out for God for help. You know, the movie starts with people praying. You know that, don't you? It starts with people praying. Mr. Gower's praying for George. Violet's praying for George. You know, Mom's praying for George. Mary's praying for George. Bert and Ernie, not related to the ones on Sesame Street. The sheriff and the cab driver praying for George. I think Bert says something. Ward Bond's character says, he never thinks about himself, Lord. You've got to help him. You've got to help him. And you see that, you know, every, and then finally Zuzu wraps up the prayers. Oh, God, help Daddy come back home, you know. And so you, and then you find George at a bridge. And he's standing on this bridge and he's thinking. He's wondering. It's been such an awful, awful day. And he's beginning to wonder, maybe I should jump. Remember, uh, Mr. Potter says to him, George, you're more valuable dead than alive, because he has that insurance policy. And he looks at it, and he, just as he gets ready to jump, somebody's jumping in the water, and he saves the person, and they end up at the guard shack. And you find out that the person he saves is Clarence Oddbody, uh, you know, second class, angel second class. Can you tell I love this movie? And they get to talking, and he goes, maybe, maybe I shouldn't have been born. And he goes, well, what did you say, George? He goes, I wish I had never been born. I said it, you know. And he goes, 
And remember, Clarence goes, what do you think? Yeah. Hmm. Okay, George, you've got your wish. And the door flies open. The wind blows. George can suddenly hear out of his left ear. Why? Well, he, used to, he lost that saving his brother when he broke through the ice, you know. And, and so he's, he's, uh, he finds out what life is like if he'd never been born. He finds out that he had a wonderful life. And so this movie, for some of us here, we couldn't, we couldn't have Christmas without it. Some of us here can't stand it. Because we don't think it's a wonderful life. We think it's Frank Capra's first movie after the war. And it's pie, you know, pie in the sky. What kind of goofy... You know, that's just all Hollywood gooey, gooey gunk. Because if I were honest and you were honest, we'd say, life sometimes isn't very wonderful, is it? It isn't wonderful at all. And so uh, today what I want to do is I want to talk about some lessons we can learn from this movie. That's what I want to spend. Instead of spending uh, ten weeks looking at each character, I'm only going to talk about two. And I think I'm going to talk about these two here that's on the graphic. I want to talk about George this week. And next week I want to talk about Clarence. What's the message? That's what angels did. They gave messages. What's the message God wants us to give others during Christmas? How can we be like a Clarence in people's lives? And, uh, and then we're going to wrap it up with our Christmas service. And we're going to entertain the idea of what life would be like if Jesus would have never been born. We're going to look at that at our Christmas service. You don't want to miss that. So what do we, what do we learn here, Tim? How can I make it? A, that's what's called making it a wonderful life. Well, how can I make my life so wonderful? How can it be a wonderful life? Well, my life can be wonderful. We're going to look at George today. We, George teaches us these principles. I can make my life wonderful, first of all, when I put others first. When I put others first. That's what George does, doesn't he? That seems to be what happens to him over and over again. Look what Jesus said. Jesus talks about a life, talks about really living. And look what he says here. If you insist on saving your life, you will lose it. Only those who throw away their lives for my sake and for the sake of the good news will ever know what it means to really live. What's he saying? He goes, only those that will live not for themselves, but for others, they discover what a wonderful life really can be. And George was this kind of guy. You know, when Harry breaks through the ice, his brother, when they're kids, he breaks through the ice. What does George do? He dives into frigid waters and pulls his, his brother to safety, and, but he loses his hearing in his left ear. As he gets older, the first time we see Jimmy Stewart, uh, which is his first film after the war, and we see his face is when he's getting a suitcase, if you remember, and they ask him, well, how big do you want it, George? And he goes, oh, about this, and he stops like that, and he's, this big is what he's getting ready to say. And what is he doing? Well, he's just graduated college. He's, gonna, he's decided he's going to pack up, and it's, he says this. He goes, I'm going to leave. I'm going to shake the dust off this crummy little town and see the world is what he says. I'm going to build bridges. He's, he's going to be an architect. I'm going, to, I'm going to build buildings and monuments. I'm going to go around the world. He tells Mary that. He tells all of his friends that. But that is interrupted when his father suddenly dies of a stroke. And if you remember, there's a meeting at the building and loan, and he's packing up, getting ready to leave. He goes, George, they're going to, they're going to keep the building and loan open. The, the board has decided they're going against Potter. You know, Potter wants to buy him out and take over. 
And he goes, but, but the board says they're going to go ahead and go. He goes, that's great, that's great. Well, i got to go. And he goes, wait a minute. They'll only do it if you'll stay and run it. And he stops. What? And so George is like, and what's he do? The whole town is counting on this man now. And what's he do? He stays. He doesn't go pursue his personal dream. He stays in Bedford Falls. And, if, and when he gets married, remember when he gets married? I, and I love, uh, first time I saw this movie, I was, uh, when it first got uh, released for public domain viewing um, in the 70s. And I remember before I met Denise, this movie had an impact on, on what I wanted to give her. You know, he said, Barry, you want me to lasso the moon? I can lasso the moon. I'll bring it to you. Yeah, yeah, I'll bring it to you. And you can eat it and moonbeams will shoot out your eyes and ears and, you know, and your hair. And like, you're crazy, George. You're crazy. But you watch this film and you just, you go, wow, what ambition, what, what purity, what a good, a good person George Bailey is. And yes, so when he finally gets married to Mary, they they decide to get married. Uh, He gets married on the on the day the stock market crashes. So as they're leaving town on their honeymoon, they see everybody running crazy outside the bank. What's going on? The stock market's crashed and there's a run on the bank and everybody's, and everybody's gathered around the entrance of, this, of the Bailey building alone. Remember that? And they're all wanting to go in and he's... What's going on, guys? Well, you know, the bank's locked up. Why is it, hold on. He goes, Uncle Billy, why have you locked the bank? We have no money. We don't have any money. You know, we, we, all these people are going to want all the money. What are we going to do? So how come all the people in, and they're all wanting their money, and who holds up $2,000? But it's Mary. She holds up $2,000. He goes, I got $2,000 right here. Let's, will that help? And George goes, yeah, yeah, yes, it will. And they pass out this money a little bit at a time, and they're counting down the clock to 5 o'clock, and then finally it's 5 o'clock. They lock the doors. We made it. And they got $2 left, remember? And they put them in a box. He goes, let's see if they'll, you know, multiply overnight. You know, they put them in, in a safe place. He, he gives up his honeymoon. He gives up his savings for the sake of the building and loan. And when Harry is, uh, comes back from college and he uh, has graduated, he meets George at the train stop and he says, uh, I want you to meet my new wife. You're married? Yes. Tell him about the job, Harry. What job? Well, I got this opportunity. It's a great opportunity, George, and I can make a lot of money. And, and, and you can see he's like, but you were supposed to take over the building alone and I was going to go pursue my dream. And I know, George, but, you know, it's okay. No, what, no, it's not. What George do? What's he do? He stays at Bedford Falls. And his brother, he lets his brother go and pursue his dream. His brother becomes a war hero. Where's George? Still at Bedford Falls, collecting rubber and tin for the war effort. And he's that uh, air raid monitor. Remember, he blows the whistle and it doesn't blow very good. You know, he's got a flashlight, doesn't even have a gun. You know, he's like the Barney Fife of life, you know, in a way, okay? It's like you, your heart goes out to him. But don't feel sorry for George because he's lived a generous life. He's thought of others. And he doesn't know it, but he's really living a wonderful life. Guys, listen, there's two ways you can live on this earth. You can think of number one, yourself, or you can put others first. 
That's two ways to live. Jesus talks about this. He says it this way in the message in Acts 20. You're far happier giving than getting. He says you can either be a giver or a getter in life. And you can be happy, you can enjoy some of it, but you'll enjoy and have a much more wonderful life by being a giver. Life is better, see? He's saying life is better when you think of others, when you bless others. In Proverbs, this is Solomon, he says, The merciful, kind, and generous man benefits himself, for his deeds return to bless him. But he was cruel and callous, to the wants of others, brings on himself retribution. You can choose. God lets you choose. George decides to think of others. And he's living a wonderful life because he's a generous man. Look at look, look what Paul says here in First Timothy. Tell those rich in, the, in this world's wealth to quit being so full of themselves. Tell them to go after God, who piles on all the riches we could ever manage. To do good, to be rich in helping others, to be extravagantly generous. If they do that, they'll build a treasury that will last, gaining life that is truly life. Does that sound like a wonderful life? That's what Paul's talking about here. And it comes when I put others first. What are you about? This morning, what are you about? Are you about getting or giving? What, what, are you, what have you become over the years? Is it more about getting or more about giving? Those of us who have been Christians a number, uh, a number of years, remember how generous you were at one time. Has that changed? Has that grown into more generosity? Or do you find yourself more focused on what's in it for me? Has the first place of others been replaced by number one, yourself? You make it a wonderful life when you put others first. You know, I know some of us already are saying, maybe you've thought this already in this lesson. You know, Tim, what are you doing? You're using a movie. Well, even the Apostle Paul in Acts 17 would say, he would quote the poets of the day. Because art does imitate life, folks. And this is a godly, eternal principle in life, whether it's in a movie or in the scriptures, that thinking of others truly makes life a great life. Number two, what's the second thing? My life can be wonderful when I resist temptation. One of the things you'll notice again in this movie, life, a wonderful life is not a problem-free life, huh? Right? It's not problem-free. And, you know, George had, it seemed like there was good and bad happening at the same time all the time to him. He'd have something good happen and then something bad would happen. And that's what life really is. It's a, it's a combination of the good and the bad happening sometimes on the same day. And George is not insulated from hardship and tragedy and neither are you. You and I were just as susceptible, just as in the middle of good and the bad as anyone else. Just because I'm a Christian doesn't insulate me from difficulties. Even Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But praise God, you've overcome the world. That's the difference. But it's in these difficult moments George faces temptation. And if you stop and think about it, don't you face some temptations when things aren't going the way you'd like for them to? Yeah, it gets tough. 
In fact, I notice in the movie he's tempted one time to be bitter and cynical because life has just all of a sudden gone sour for him. What used to be this ambition to give Mary the moon, all he can give her now is a he calls a drafty old house. He thinks about quitting, cashing it all in. When Mr. Potter says to him, you're more valuable dead than alive, George. And it gives him the idea, maybe I should just check out and get out of here. But probably the temptation that we know more than ever is the one where he and Mr. Potter are sitting together at the table at his office and Mr. Potter offers him a job. Am I right? And he says, George, your ship has finally come in. Remember, he gives him, he says, uh, I'm going to pay you $10,000 a year. We'll start there. That's a lot of money back then. He goes, finally, you can take that trip you've always wanted to go. You know, see the world. You can always get those lovely things you've always wanted to get your wife. And you watch George as he sits in that sunken chair. Why is that chair always like, like this? You know, he's sunken and he's got that cigar and he's thinking. And you can see him thinking, you know. I've paid my dues. I've made it all about everybody else. It's my turn. That, that temptation comes. But what's George do? Remember Home Alone? They're in France. We know the scene. It's the same scene, but this time it's in French. No, no. You know, right? But we know what he's saying because we've heard it in English. No, no, I'm not going to do that, Mr. Potter. I'm going to tell you right now. And he gets in his face. You'll never get this and get that. And we're all going, yeah, stick it to him. But he was tempted, wasn't he? How many times do you find yourself tempted? When things are tough. Guys, Satan knows when to tempt you. Not just where and what. He knows when to tempt you. Man, if Tim, let me show you how he, how he hits me. If Tim gets a little overwhelmed, I know how to get him discouraged. And he'll want to quit. I know how to get him scared. So he'll back up a little bit, back off. Anybody else know what I'm talking about? You know, it's, 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 it's those moments. Satan knows exactly when to hit you on the heels of an argument with your spouse. Or hearing bad news from the doctor. Or getting a lung, maybe getting a, getting a pink slip at work, whatever it be. Or the car breaking down. Just the car breaking down. He knows what to do. And he capitalizes on it. And it's in those moments, those temptations tell us, they encourage us to quit, to dial it down. We say to ourselves, why is this happening to me? This isn't fair. I've been a good person. I'm not, I remember one time a fellow became a Christian here. And shortly after uh, he became a Christian the same week, something major happened to him. And he goes, Tim, you told me if I became a Christian, everything would be up and to the right. I said, I said that? Yeah. And he shows me the passage. Commit your plans to the Lord and you will succeed. And I said, well, we've got to define what success means. You know what he said to me? Oh, the old bait and switch. I see. Now you're going to tell me it's not like that. I said, well, wait a minute. Can I explain? No, you cannot explain. 
You'll never be able to explain it to satisfy me. He was bitter and bothered from that from then on. See, the temp- that we get when things don't work out the way we want them to, we get tempted to quit, to stop, to back off. Some of you, some of you guys used to be, you know, used to lead in this congregation, and now you've just backed, backed. Slow. It's not. You didn't take a big leap back. Oh no, that would have gained too much attention. No, you just take a. Not today. Maybe later. I think I'll. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I need to take a break. You understand what that does, don't you? And you don't even realize you've been. You've been moving and moving. You're moving, but it's not forward. I understand. I understand. You don't want to get out of bed. You don't want to. You don't want to study with anybody more. It hurts too much. You don't want to. I want a ministry, a volunteer. Man, I just don't have the energy for some reason. Something's the temptation. It's my turn. It's my time. Me time. Don't I deserve to be happy? Where did the Bible say that? What happened to you? Where did the Bible say that? So you're saying I'm supposed to be miserable. No, you're not supposed to be. And we don't need any help from God to be miserable. I didn't become a Christian to be miserable either. But I'm not insulated from misery and pain. The difference is by being a Christian, I have something that overcomes that now by myself. It's a sucky life. But with Jesus, it can be wonderful. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. It's just a temptation. This temptation. And we lose our patience with God. And we begin to think, maybe I want to try... You know, This is not working in my marriage. This is not working where, in my home. This is not working in my life anymore. Maybe there's something wrong with the, the plan. And so we begin to have some doubts. We're tempted to cash it in. And I want to encourage you, like George Bailey, to say, no, no, you know, whatever language you want to say. Resist it. Fight it. You know what I'm saying? Fight that temptation. Resist that temptation. Look at what it says in Psalm 37. Don't be impatient for the Lord to act. Now, why would you say that, David? Because we get impatient. We get discouraged. And we are tempted to act on our own. He says, keep traveling steady along his pathway. And in due season, he will honor you with every blessing. And you will see the wicked destroyed. I myself have seen it happen. A proud and evil man towering like a cedar of Lebanon. But when I looked again, he was gone. Question. Where's Mr. Potter at the end of this movie? Where's everybody at in Bedford Falls? They're at George's house. Where's Mr. Potter? He's gone. He's gone. That's what he's talking about here. I look again and he's gone. I searched but could not find him. But the good man, look at the look at the difference here. But the good man, what a different story. For the good man, the blameless, the upright, the man of peace, he has a wonderful future ahead of him. For him, there is a happy ending. Wonderful life. 
but I must be patient and resist temptation. Look at First Peter here. Here's a guy who knows and understands temptation too. He says, So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though the going is rough for a while down here. Now, why these verses here? They had the word wonderful in them. But I want you to see, you know, the Bible teaches us when you resist temptation, you can have a wonderful life. What are you needing to resist? What are you falling for? This morning is an important question to ask yourself. What temptation have I just fell into that I yield to? That I need to start resisting? Falling into that temptation is robbing you of life that is truly life. Number three, I can make it a wonderful life when I'm willing to do the ordinary things right where I am. When I'm willing to just do the ordinary things right where I am. You know, I learned something here from this movie. One person can change the world. One person can change lives. All it takes is one person. See, George thought he was missing out. He thought to himself, you know, while Sam Wainwright, a classmate of his, is making his first million in plastics... He's stuck at Bedford Falls working on this humdrum life of his and trying to run this Bailey building and loan. His idea of building skyscrapers and bridges and superstructures, that dream has long set sail. And so he assumes, I've accomplished nothing. I'm a failure. But he's wrong. He's wrong. He's blind. Put that away. He's blind. Think about that in a minute here. See, he doesn't realize all the people he's touched. There's Harry. There's Mr. Gower. There's Violet. There's Bert and Ernie. There's Mr. Martini. Mary. Uncle Billy, his mother, the, the town of Bedford Falls. The community has been touched by this man. Remember uh, he's, the scene where he's at the cemetery and Clarence is showing him a tombstone and it says Harry Bailey and it shows the dates and he goes, and he looks at it, Clarence goes, my brother saved their every life on, the, on that transport. And he goes, your brother wasn't there to save those guys, George, because you weren't there to save Harry. Don't you see? You've had a wonderful life. And then he says, uh, while, while George is finally figuring this, starting to see this, he says, strange, isn't it? Each man's life touches so many others' lives. And listen to this. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? I remember watching this movie with my older brother. My older brother, Mike. We weren't getting along too well. You know, I'd been a Christian for several years, and he had chosen a different path, and, you know, and he's always been the hero of my life. And we're watching this movie at his house, and uh, there's that scene where Uncle Billy's got all those, he holds up his hand, he's got three of his fingers, I think, with, with cords on them, you know, and he goes, you're that guy, and I go, I know, I'm such a forgetful fella, I just, no, 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 Tim, you're George Bailey. I go, what? 
you're George Bailey, you would leave a hole. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Because at that moment, I didn't realize how he saw me. I thought he thought I was lunatic and crazy. You know, you're a religious guy. You go to church. You know, you carried this God thing way too far. And I'm thinking, he has no respect for me. And he says, no, Tim, you're the guy. Listen to, listen to me. You are George Bailey. You hear me? You're George Bailey. You know that, don't you? George. Cassie, George, right there. George Bailey. Charlie. <laughs> you keep, man, you stay hang in there and you stay here. You're George. Mike? I know for me you've been George. Every one of us here, you're George. You're George. But Sue, you are George in my life. I'm Uncle Billy. You're George. You ever had her cherry pie? She's George. I look at back all, all of you. Val, you are George Bailey. But you know what happens is we forget this. Am I right? Am I right, Don? We forget we're George Bailey. I forget I'm George Bailey. I think I'm a goof. I'm I'm Violet. You know, I'm I'm the the crazy kid that opened up the gymnasium floor and everybody fell in. I'm Alfalfa. That was Alfalfa, by the way. Do you see what I'm saying? You are George Bailey. You've got to believe this. That's the whole point of this morning. When you stop and think about it. If you don't realize that what you do every day... We get this idea, guys, that we've, we've got to do something spectacular to really change something. I've got to do something amazing. It's ordinary. How do you know that, Tim? Let me show you. You'll say, of course. How many people have touched your life? Can you think of the people who have touched your life? I think of my mom and dad. As screwed up as they were, they sure loved each other. Hardworking. Protected me. I think of, a, I think of my grandparents. My great-grandfather, whether it be Christmas lights or woodworking. Um, some moments with him just channeled me a different direction. My grandmother making sure I went to church and to church camp. Didn't want me to miss that. My aunt and uncle. My Uncle Larry showed me how to shoot an automatic weapon. My Uncle Ben, who when I was... I was scared. I didn't know what I was going to do. I had to get to a, to the, to a, a bus to go to a band concert. Nobody was around. Would drive out from Albion and pick me up. And, and I'm crying. I can't get my breath. And he'd say, calm down, Tim. It's, everything's going to be okay. He was such, such an easygoing man. And there's my Aunt Helen who would buy me ice cream and army men for Christmas. Little army men. Paint the helmets different colors so I could keep them on the same team. And all these friends, friends of my mom and dad, Don and Wilma Wick, he had a hook. Shavy. And, you know, uh, 
Thurman and Hazel Pierce. What a goofy names, you know, Thurman and Hazel. I think of uh, just riding in the car with them, just doing some of them. Ordinary stuff. They didn't do anything spectacular. They loved me when I needed love. They accepted me when I needed that. They encouraged me a little bit. They touched my life. And all the friends, all the friends, can you think of friends? Think of all the friends, the school teachers, for crying out loud, the, just the teachers, Mr. Wallace, Mr. Prater, Mrs. Waite. Mrs. Waite read Charlotte's Web to me in the fourth grade, and I cried when Charlotte died, so I wouldn't be embarrassed, and I did it like that, so nobody'd know. And she read a book, fourth grade, would read it right after, right after lunch, would read the book Across Four Aprils, and I have a copy of that book because of her, about the Civil War in southern Illinois. There's Mr. Luthie. <coughs> Woodworking teacher. Man, man, let me remind you. Always wear your your respirator when you're working with wood. There's Mr. Spear, who was picky, picky, picky. Then there's all these friends. I mean, Gene Etheridge. I remember falling in the deep end of the Fairfield swimming pool at church camp. Nobody saw it but Gene. And I was underwater, and I didn't think I was going to get out. And he pulls me out of the water and saves my life. That's why I care about Gene Etheridge still. Can you think all these people have touched you and you go, man, yeah, they were there. They filled the hole. If they hadn't have been there, there would have been a hole. Now, why do I tell you about all those people in my life? To remind you of all the people in your life. There is somebody, there's a hole you need to make sure you fill. Because you're George Bailey. You're just as much George Bailey as they've been to you. And it isn't, doesn't take something spectacular. All it takes is something ordinary. I'm going to say it this way. You've got to believe this this morning. If you're a Christian, you must believe this. You are not insignificant. Your life matters. What you're doing isn't meaningless. You're just blind to it if you think that. You're blind to it. You're as blind as George Bailey. Jimmy Stewart once said that this movie is about an ordinary man who discovers that living each ordinary day honorably with faith in God and selfless concern for others can make for a truly wonderful life. You agree? I agree. Listen to how Paul says... He talks about this wonderful life. Here's what he says he wants us to do. I love this, my favorite passage from the message, Romans 12. It says, so here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walk around life and place it before God as an offering. He's saying be a living sacrifice, everything, the mundane, the ordinary. Bring it all to God. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what He wants from you and quickly respond to it. And what's He want? He says, I just want you to take your your everyday life And use it for me. Why? Because when you're not around, listen to me, 
When you're not around, you leave an awful hole. When you're not at church because you're just, I don't think I'll go today, you leave an awful hole. I'm going to skip small group today. Why? I don't I just don't feel like going. You leave an awful hole. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to invite anybody to this Christmas thing. I, you know, I don't care about that. I, I don't like Christmas. You're leaving an awful hole. And you can just think of others, other situations. See, God wants you to make a difference. And it doesn't have to be crazy spectacular. It's just re- recognize what he wants, he wants you to do, what he wants from you. And just do it. Just do it. Let me give you one specific thought. I caught myself one day deleting names from my phone of people I don't see anymore. Anybody ever done that? Well, i got to free up my phone. for. Uh, and th- I've stopped doing that. Over the weekend, over the Thanksgiving weekend, I'm in Mount Carmel, and I'm... I decide to text Travis Borns. Why? It just come over me. You know the Packers. The Packer game hadn't happened yet with the Bears, and I didn't say anything about the Packer game or the Bears. I simply just said, "Hey, Travis, I'm just thinking about you right now on Thanksgiving, and I'm praying." Dot dot dot. And I don't know, you guys, some of you guys say you text him and you never get it right back at me. It comes a text response. Tim, I've been thinking about you too. When I'm in town, could we get together? Could we, could we, I would love to see you. Absolutely. Have a happy Thanksgiving. That was, I tried to fill a hole. Was that spectacular? You didn't, like, oh my gosh, Tim, that is, oh, wow. No, you go, that's all you did? Yeah, that's all I did. Ordinary stuff. I'm not taking anybody's names off my phone anymore. Because maybe I'm supposed to touch them. Well, maybe. I'm supposed to touch them. Absolutely. Number four. I, I can have a wonderful life when I commit my life to God. When George's at the end of his rope, he's at, he's at Nick's bar because, see, he's not been born. And Martini loses that bar to the bartender, Nick. And it's an it's a awful place. And he's there. They're serving hot drinks, you know. And he's trying to explain Clarence Oddbody wants a drink. And, and, uh, and this crazy, he orders a crazy drink, you know. And he's saying, oh, look, he hit the cash of a bell. That means an angel gets its wings. And, blah, blah. And, and, you know, Nick's like, oh, listen to this guy. You know, and he's getting, having a problem. And George goes, hey, don't, don't mind him. Don't mind him, Nick. He goes, that's another thing. I don't even know you. Where do you get off calling me Nick? He goes, what are you talking about? And he's realizing this is not working out. And, and if you think about it, the last time he was there, he'd been praying. The last time George had been at this bar, remember he was praying, Lord, I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there, show me the way. Show me the way. And what does God do? He shows him the way.
God hears him. Doesn't matter where you are. You call out to God, he will hear you. And he shows George what a wonderful life is all about. And church, it begins. Listen to me. I don't know where you are with your relationship with God. Several of you here. But I'll tell you what. When you make a, a commitment to God, you find out how wonderful life can be. Psalms 31 verse 19 says, How wonderful are the good things you keep for those who honor you. And look at this in Psalms 112. Hallelujah, blessed man, blessed woman, who fear God, who cherish and relish His commandments. Notice that there's the, there's the premise there. Their children were robust on the earth, and the homes of the upright, how blessed. Their houses brim with wealth, and a generosity that never runs dry. Now listen to this next sentence here. Interesting. Sunrise breaks through the darkness for good people. Am I immune from darkness? Are you immune from darkness? He says for good people, the sun will break through their darkness. What's that mean? I'm going to experience some things not so wonderful. But God will break through that. God, he says here, sun breaks through the darkness for good people. God's grace and mercy and justice. The good person is generous and lends lavishly. No shuffling or stumbling around for this one, but a sterling and solid and lasting reputation. Unfazed by rumor and gossip. Are you going to have people have rumors and gossip about you? Does that sound pleasant? You know, Jesus said, in, I think it was in Mark 10, if you give up your homes and mothers and fathers and fields, he goes, I, I will bless you a hundred times more with homes, mothers, fathers, fields, and persecutions. Even persecution is a, a blessing from God. That's why we're to consider it a pure joy. Heart ready, trusting in God, spirit firm, unperturbed. That's interesting. Ever blessed, relaxed among enemies. They lavish gifts on the poor. A generosity that goes on and on and on. An honored life. A beautiful life. You could say a wonderful life. When you commit yourself to God. He promises a wonderful life. Look at even Jesus said this, a thief only comes to steal and to kill and destroy. I came so they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. Now you might say, Tim, that's what's confusing for me as a believer. Because God promises this wonderful life, but I don't feel it's so wonderful. I came across a letter. It was written to Clarence by someone. I want to read it to you. Dear Clarence, at the outset, please forgive me if this letter seems a bit disjointed. I've never written an angel before, so I'm a bit nervous. What's the occasion for this, for my first angel letter? I realize it's a tad tardy, but it's regarding the movie that made you famous, Frank Capra's iconic film, It's a Wonderful Life. I've watched it for nearly every year I've been alive. I have even passed this tradition on to my growing children. Indeed, for much, perhaps even for the majority of the United States, even Christians now, Christmas is nearly synonymous with this movie. A Christmas passing without watching it? 
unthinkable. Just recalling the famous line by one of the Bailey girls, every time the bell rings, an angel gets its wings, gets me all misty-eyed. After all, you got your wings by helping George, right? Way to go! However, as much as I deeply appreciate the film on many levels, I've had a budding concern. Really, it's not so much as a concern as it is, how shall I put it, a mild disagreement. I know. I know, lowly old me disagreeing with you, an angel. What nerve? But, but please allow me to briefly explain. After you save George from attempting suicide, and he gets a harrowing glimpse of his life, how it would be if he never existed, almost in passing you comment, you see, George, you had a wonderful life. Don't you see it would be a shame if you threw it all away? Now, by any measure, it would appear George Bailey certainly had a wonderful life. By wonderful, I'm inferring, you mean great and delightful. He had a beautiful wife, four kids, a home to call his own, and friends galore. His list of achievements is legendary. Saves his brother from drowning, and then he becomes a war hero. Keeps his wife from becoming an old maid. Rehabilitates and rescues alcoholic Mr. Gower, his childhood boss. Saves his dad's business. Averts the lovely Violet from becoming a prostitute. And prevents Bedford Falls from becoming Pottersville. At the movie's end, he almost had everyone eating out of the palm of his hand. Now, not to sound like a wet blanket, Clarence, but is it really a wonderful life? I don't mean exclusively for George Bailey, but for the whole, whole of humanity. Can it be said, even for the Christian, that life is wonderful? Yes, I concede there are moments in life where one can say, that was wonderful. I'm not discounting the many blessings and episodes of sheer exhilaration, joy, or beauty, and awe. But surely you know how we are a fallen race, ruined and marred by sin, and its ongoing decaying effects. Even the most sanctified Christian is not immune to a difficult marriage, job loss, miscarriages, cancer, the ebb and flow of friendships, unexpected tragedy, I mean, Clarence, life is hard, even considering the wonderful moments. I mean, look at Jesus. Did he live a wonderful life? Isn't he called the suffering servant? And what about the Apostle Paul and the early church? Even today, I think of some of the most mature Christians I know who even amidst life's highs would seriously question if this earthly life is wonderful in the truest sense. Does following Jesus mean one will have a wonderful life? Instead, should we say Jesus promises a joyful life, even amidst significant suffering? I mean, in theological language, to expect a wonderful life now is to have an over-realized eschatology. We're living between two worlds, aren't we? The now and the not yet. In other words, Clarence, the reason this isn't a wonderful life, like Capra would want you to think, even for the redeemed, is for this simple reason. Life this side of glory is not the way it's supposed to be, even for George Bailey. So this Christmas, I'll break out the hot cider, huddle the kids around our bulky TV with lousy reception, and once again watch It's a Wonderful Life. And anticipating the lines from memory, but this time, Clarence, I'll do so thinking of my Redeemer, who one day will make all things right in the world gone terribly wrong. 
even for the George Baileys among us. Merry Christmas. Helen. Clarence wrote her back. Dear Helen, I got your letter. It's good to hear from you. I have to admit I can see your point. The world is ruined and marred by sin. And you're right, Christians are not immune to tragedy and hardship. But do you think that God intended for the life He promises to be experienced after you're dead? Why can't it begin now? Helen, you don't have to wait until you're dead. When Jesus was born into this broken world, He was on a mission. And by dying on a cross, He made it possible for you to experience His wonderful life today. Right now. And what a life it is. For the life He offers is is living free from the power of sin. Right now. It's a life filled with the passion of God's love. Right now. It's a life sanctified to be used for God's purpose. Right now. And most of all, most of all, it's a wonderful life that will last forever. For the best is yet to come. And it all begins with a commitment to God. So as you celebrate Christmas with your family around your bulky TV with its lousy reception, celebrate it in joy. The life you have because of Christ. The life that's truly life. For it is a wonderful life. And I don't know where you are this morning. I know it's a little confusing being a Christian. Why is this bad stuff still happening to me? They are in a broken world. But it doesn't mean you can't begin to experience God's wonderful life now. Look what the Bible says when a person's baptized. Look what happens. Your old sinful nature was buried with him by baptism when he died. And when God the Father, with glorious power, brought him back to life again, you were given his wonderful new life to enjoy. That's what Wendy enjoyed just a couple of weeks ago, her new life. And guys, your new life at your baptism is his wonderful life. His power and presence and passion in your life began when you came out of that water. In John 3, he simply says, Jesus said, This is why whoever accepts and trusts the Son of God gets in on everything. Life complete. And look at that. And forever. So where are you this morning? Are you experiencing a wonderful life? Are you blind to what's happened to you? Are you blind to your purpose? Will you, like George Bailey, have your eyes open this Christmas season and see that you truly have a wonderful life, you leave a big hole when you're not around. That life, true life, is when you put others first, resist temptation, just give your ordinary selves to God where you are, work, home, school. And it all comes from the moment you make that commitment to God. Have you made that commitment to God? Because in store for you is a wonderful life when you do. There's a card in your bulletin, and it's just a chance to respond to this lesson. And um, 
You can write out, if there's a prayer you want somebody to pray for, this, these cards we take up, and I know I say this every time, but I, did, I like reminding myself the purpose of these prayer cards, these cards, is to respond to this lesson, to make a decision, but it's also a chance for you to write something out that you want someone to pray over. There is a team of people in our prayer ministry, I only know a couple of them in this team, they're, used, they're very covert and they're under the radar kind of people, but they get four, five, six cards, and they pray over those cards and pray through those cards, and they pray through yours. Even if you turn it in blank, even if you turn it in blank, I also want to say this morning is take advantage of that. And uh, if you've got something you want us to pray about, let someone pray for you. They won't tell anybody else what it's about. They'll tell God, and oh, will they? They will talk to Him all week about it. And uh, let me encourage you. Think about who you could bring to this series. We're going to talk about clearance next week. You're all angels. We're all angels in a way. We carry a message. What is the message? How do we carry it? And then um, hopefully we'll all be together on the 20th, okay, to look at what would life be like if Jesus weren't born. Let's pray together. We'll be through. Father, thank you for these thoughts this morning, Lord. I want to thank you for movies like this. Yeah, there's some sappy stuff in it. I noticed that. There's things I go, I don't know about this. That's Hollywood. But Father, I see a lot of your eternal truth in in some of this this movie. And Father, I pray that um, we pray you help us live out a wonderful life, Lord. Father, for some of us here, this simply means putting others first. Father, we've been living with our selfish selves. We've been full of ourselves. We need to quit being so full of ourselves. And maybe it's a simple phone call, a text, a letter, a card. I'm talking to James this morning over at the Godfrey Church. He told me that he sent a birthday card to a granddaughter. And the grandmother in his congregation just beamed. He said, I never thought something so easy to do would have such an impact. It's the little things, Lord. And Father, we pray that you'll, you'll help us see just the, the ordinary mundane things, the things, the ordinary life that we have, that you want us to use it to fill holes around us. Lord, help us resist temptation. I know some of us here are tempted to quit. We've, we're tempted to back off. And, we, and we've, we have yielded to this temptation. We've been hurt. We're tired. Father, we, we feel betrayed at times. And so quitting looks so attractive. And Lord, though, some of us here who have quit, Father, um, are older. We may have less energy. We may have less desire. Father, would you quicken our hearts? Father, help us, help us not die before we're dead. And just, just be the Christian you want us to be, Lord. What do you want us to see about our life? Do we need to appreciate somebody who's touched ours? Would that help us touch others? Oh, Father, help us never underestimate our role. And Father, we, we just ask, I ask, Father, that you help us make a commitment to you this morning, the kind of commitment that cherishes and relishes what you say, that's generous, that is at peace, You know, your word says that you give wonderful peace to people who trust you. I pray, Father, you'll do that. Let us, some of us here, rededicate our lives to you right now. 
and, and give to you our ordinary walking around, eating, sleeping, going to work life, to give it to you as an offering, especially during this holiday season, Lord, because there's someone that needs you. And you're putting us in their life for that purpose. Let us recognize it and quickly respond to it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.